0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. Let's do this. Before we dive into our message this morning, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this time of year that we can say it's Christmas. And God, I pray that throughout this season we would remember all that you have done for us through Christ. We thank you for the many, many kids who are involved in our children's choirs and children's programs. And God, our goal with that is not just to have them be entertained, but to learn through music. And so, God, I pray that that is being accomplished. I pray this evening in the program that we would be encouraged, that we'd have a good time watching the kids, but that that, the truth behind what they're singing would also ring true. And even next week as we have the kids' praise, God, again, that all the hard work that they put into the programs would uh, be be realized in in their performance. But, God, this time of year at Christmas, as we think about opportunity for giving, God, it's a realization that this message of Christ that we so freely sing about is a message that we want all people to know. We want all people to understand why we celebrate Christmas. And so I pray that through our emphasis on missions this week and this month, that that would become a reality. We love you. We thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, your Bibles, open them with me to Daniel chapter 1. And if you have a bulletin, on the back is an outline that we'll be walking through as well. Daniel chapter 1. So, I asked earlier, and all the kids seemed excited about Christmas. Parents, grandparents, are you all ready? No. (laughs) A little different feel in that answer. Um, You know, it's so easy this time of year to be distracted by the busyness and the hecticness of the season. Over the past several weeks, what we've been doing in our sermons is really doing different character studies and just trying to understand more from certain individuals in Scripture what we can learn from their lives, what we can apply to our lives. This morning, and really this month, we're starting a new Christmas series that's going to continue that theme of looking at the lives of certain people in Scripture. But these are people who are in some way connected to the Christmas story. These are people, maybe, that as you're reading through the Christmas story, you see their name, but they're not in the center of the story. They're not the main characters, but yet they're connected. And through this, what I want us to do is to have a greater understanding of why Christmas is so significant. So each week this month, all the way through Christmas Eve, the 24th, we're going to be focusing on different characters and asking the question, how are they connected to the Christmas story? What does it mean for me? How can I change because of what we've learned? This morning, we're looking at the life of Daniel. You may be wondering, Daniel, how is Daniel connected to the Christmas story? I'll show that as we go throughout the message this morning. But what I want to do first of all is simply walk through the life of Daniel. Now, what's one of the most well-known stories from the book of Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den. Can you think of any others? I didn't understand any of that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that one? Daniel chapter 3. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6. We have um, the handwriting on the wall also in the book of Daniel. And so a lot of these stories are familiar, but here's what I want to do. Let's just walk through this, and if you have your outline, I'll be showing you several things that I think will help us understand a little bit about the life of Daniel, then we'll tie it to the story of Christmas here in a few minutes. The book of Daniel starts with the king of Babylon besieging Jerusalem, and one of the interesting things about the book of Daniel is in the first six chapters, even though it's concise, it covers the span of three different kings. You have King Nebuchadnezzar in the first three chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5 is King Belshazzar, and then chapter 6 is King Darius, and so even though we're just looking at six chapters, this covers a big period of time, and when the story picks up in Daniel chapter 1, this conquering has taken place and in Daniel 1 verse 3 we see that the king gives the command to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility, young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Now the king's plan, if you've read the book of Daniel or you've ever been to Sunday school, you've probably heard some of this. This will be familiar. The king's plan was to bring some of these kids over to put them on the king's diet to train them and these were the most bright the smartest the most um, the most intelligent kids that they could think of to bring them to the kingdom and to have them trained and equipped to serve in the palace but the problem was that the kingdom that they were bringing them into and the diet that they want them to put put them on, was in opposition to the Jewish law. And so Daniel and his friends, as they're walking into this new scenario, as they've been taken captive, walking into this new position, so to speak, they're faced with this challenge. We've been brought here. We are safe. We're going to be put on this diet to serve in the palace. This is not too bad of a gig considering we've been taken captive. But what they're asking us to do is contrary to how we've been raised. It's contrary to the Jewish law. And one of the first things we see from this, and this is the first point on your outline, is that Daniel was not afraid to take a stand. Because as he's presented with this option, he's presented with this. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. You see his response. But Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. Now, here's what's interesting about this. When Daniel is taken captive, and when Daniel is brought in, and when verse 8, the verse we just read, is being written, Daniel is a teenager. This is not some seasoned adult who's been through all of these experiences. This is someone probably 15 to 17 years old who understands what God's will for his life is and says, I am not going to disobey God. Here's a great reminder. Teenagers, college students, listen. Listen carefully. You do not have to wait until you are a fully grown adult to take a stand for God and do right. You can follow God and you can take a stand each and every day. That's exactly what Daniel is doing. He was a guy that was not afraid to take a stand for what he believed in. He didn't let pressure from other people cause him to be unstable in his beliefs. He took a stand regardless of who was watching, regardless of the circumstances. The second thing I want us to notice is that God was with Daniel. God was with him. Several times throughout the book of Daniel, we read similar to what we read in verse 9. Now, God granted Daniel favor. Down in verse 17, God gave them skill, knowledge and skill in all learning and all wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God was with Daniel. It wasn't that Daniel was just some smart guy, even though he was intelligent. It wasn't just some guy who just got lucky. This was a guy that God's hand of blessing was on him. Because Daniel was willing to take a stand on what he believed God was with him in an extraordinary way. And what's interesting about this is it wasn't just that Daniel realized that God was with him. And it wasn't just that Daniel's friends realized this. But other surrounding people in the, in the area in the kingdom recognized this. In fact, in chapter 6, after Daniel comes up out of the lion's den, King Darius looks to Daniel and he says this. Your God has saved you. Your God is with you. So, even the king, who did not even believe in Daniel's God, looks at Daniel and says, Your God saved you. Your God is with you. The fact that God was with Daniel was apparent to other people. The story continues in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, aren't you glad you don't have that name? Nebuchadnezzar starts having dreams. In chapter 2, verse 2, he calls all of the wise men and all of the magicians and all the sorcerers to come in and interpret his dream. And basically what he tells them is, if you cannot, if one of you cannot interpret this dream, I'm going to put all of you to death. Hostile work environment. I mean, how would you like to be in that? He basically says, if one of you cannot come up with the interpretation of this dream, then I'm going to put all of you to death. I mean, obviously it's unreasonable, but they can't do it. The ones who are initially pursued can, and so the king begins going around and collecting all of these wise men, all of these sorcerers, all of these people who are supposed to be able to give the interpretation of dreams, and one of the men that they go to arrest is Daniel. Daniel looks at this. He sees the reality of the situation. He goes to the king, and he says, king, please give me a little more time so I can think about this. Now, what would you do with that time? I mean, if you, if you understood that if you were not able to give the interpretation of this dream, you and dozens of other people were going to be put to death, you asked for more time, the king grants you more time, what are you going to do with it? Run? Hide? What we learn from Daniel in what he does with this time is actually very significant. In chapter 2, verse 16, I want you to notice this. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah, about the matter. Now listen to verse 18. Urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. What did he do? He prayed. I mean, in the, in the moment of... These difficult circumstances in the moment of this life-threatening situation, when everything is hanging in the balance, Daniel's response is, king, give us a little more time, and he stops, and he prays. That's actually your third point on your outline. Daniel was a person of prayer. In fact, in Daniel chapter 6, the familiar story of Daniel and the lion's den, if you remember, the king was tricked into making a decree that said, no man could pray to anyone except to the king. In chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the document or this decree had been signed, he went to his house, and the windows in the upper room opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day he got on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Here's what's interesting about that one verse he prayed openly. The windows of the house were open. He was not trying to hide his prayer life. The second thing that is interesting is that last phrase says, just as he had done before. Daniel was not just praying because the circumstances were challenging, Daniel was praying because he was a man of prayer. There's a difference, right? I mean, you're in that moment when life is falling apart and you respond in prayer, but do you pray and are you a person of prayer when everything is going right? I mean, can it be said of you that you not only pray, but that you are a person of prayer? Can it be said of you that you not only pray whenever life is falling apart, but can it be said of you that you are a person of prayer and daily you are committed to praying to God? In chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, again, we see this emphasis on prayer. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, petition, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel was a person of prayer. Back to the story. The king, again, has threatened them. They're waiting for the interpretation. He's granted Daniel more time. Daniel goes back to his friends. They spend time in prayer. God grants them the answer. They go back to the king, and they give the meaning of the dream. They give the interpretation of the dream. And it's in this that we learn our fourth truth this morning, that Daniel gave credit to God. Daniel gave credit to God. In chapter 2, verse 19 through verse 23, we see it. First there. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel, notice this, Daniel praised the God of heaven and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom Wisdom and power. Who does he give credit to? God. I mean, in the privacy of this moment, when God gives him through this dream the answer and the meaning of of the king's dreams, he pauses and says, "I understand that it is not me; it is God who has done this." He doesn't stand up and say, "You know what? Nobody else could do it. I could." He stops and says, "Thank you, God." Now that's in private. But what about in public? I mean, we can skip down to verse 27 and 28. Now Daniel is before the king. And notice what he says to the king. Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, diviner, priest or astrologer is able to make known to the king mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dreams and the visions that come to your mind as you lay in bed were these. And then he goes and gives the interpretation. Here's what's interesting about this. When Daniel is in private, who does he give credit to? God. Now when he is in public, who does he give credit to? God, listen, it is one thing for you to give credit to God when you're in private and say, you know what, God's blessed me and God has protected me and God has provided for me. It is great to do that in private, but will you do that in public? It is one thing to give credit to God when you're in a church service, but will you give credit to God when you are standing in front of people who do not believe like you believe? See, many of us have the tendency when we come together with other believers and we're with our family to say, yes, God blessed me and God has provided for me and God has protected me. But then we are silent when we're in public. Our praise to God stops in public and our testimony of what God has done for us stops in public. When we follow the example of Daniel, we give credit to God in private and we give credit to God in public. As a result of telling the meaning of the dream, Daniel gets promoted to the position where he is over all the wise men, over the whole province of Babylon. Chapter 4, the king again has a dream that none of the magicians, sorcerers, smart people could answer. So there's a response is to call who? Daniel. Daniel. To call Daniel. And like last time, Daniel comes in, he tells the meaning of the dream. But there's a little added twist in this, and this is your fifth point. Daniel encouraged other people to do right. I want you to notice chapter 4, verse 27. Now, he is standing before the king. Here's what he says to the king. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourselves from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. This king was known for being merciless to those who were needy. Daniel goes before the king in a day and time where the king, with one word, could sentence him to death and he would be executed on the spot. Stands before the king and basically looks at the king and says, King, you're a sinner and you need to forsake your sins and you need to do what is right and you need to stop being hostile to those who are poor and needy. Courage, boldness. It's one thing to do what is right personally. It is something else completely to stand before someone who does not worship your God and does not have the same values that, ha- that you have and does not have the same belief system that you have. It's one thing to do right personally. It's something else completely to stand up in that environment and say, please do what is right. It's part of your testimony. See, Daniel was the kind of person that encouraged other people to do what is right. Right? He's probably the one that influenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to do what is right, even though it meant facing the fiery furnace. Daniel had the character that caused him to do right, but it also caused him to encourage others to do right. In chapter 5, then, of Daniel, we see the story of the handwriting on the wall. Remember the story? They're at this banquet, and all of a sudden, there's this handwriting on the wall, and the king's worried. This is the next king, King Belshazzar. He sees the handwriting on the wall, and it worries him. That's normal. I mean, what would happen if you just looked over and this writing appeared on the wall? You'd be a little concerned. You'd want to know what's going on. And so he calls all the magicians and conjurers and interpreters and tells them that whoever can read the inscription will be made third in command in all the land. And none of them that are there can. But one of them remembers this guy, Daniel. Chapter 5, verse 11, here's what he tells the king. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the diviners, mediums, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So they call in Daniel. And Daniel comes in, and guess what? He reads the inscription. And he gives the meaning. and In verse 29, you see that he's made third in charge of all the land. He had the power. Even under the next king, Darius, in chapter 6, he was in a position of authority with the ability to do whatever he wanted to do and teach whatever he wanted to teach. So what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with the Christmas story? Let me give you your sixth point, and I want to tie all of this together. Number six, God was at work through Daniel's life. To everything that we've talked about in the life of Daniel, we see that God was at work through him. No matter the situation, God was at work. God gave him the powers and the ability and the wisdom that he had. But God had a plan for Daniel's life, and God's plan for Daniel's life was more than just about Daniel's life. This is where I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter two. All right, favorite you Bibles, go over with me to Matthew chapter two. Sometimes when we are studying Scripture, the temptation is to zoom all the way in to a specific character or to a specific story, and in so doing, we may miss how that character or that story fits with the whole theme of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2 is what is very familiar. You've probably read this at Christmas. You're probably going to read it again sometime over the next several weeks. But Let me read the first three verses to you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. In these first few verses, we read about this group of people known as the wise men. Who were they? I mean, who were these wise men? This group of people we actually an Eastern priestly group who were descendants from a tribe that was associated with the Medes. These wise men, also called magi, are men who were deeply skilled in astronomy. Some of them were preoccupied with astrology. Some were even involved in the occultic practices where we get the word from magi, magicians. But in that day and time, there was no real distinction, no real difference between the superstition of astrology and the science of astronomy. It was all kind of merged and mangled together into one group. But one question I've often had, and maybe you've had this question, is how did the wise men know to look for the Messiah? I mean, this is a group of people who traveled most likely many months to come and look for the Messiah. I mean, the angels didn't appear and announce the birth of Christ to the wise men. I mean, they had to stop and ask the king, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I mean, these wise men didn't know where Christ was born. They were not Jewish. They didn't know to be looking for the Jewish Messiah. In fact, as non-Jews, they shouldn't even care. I mean, why would they all of a sudden be interested in the Messiah to the point where they're willing to take this several-month difficult, hard journey to come to the place where they could worship this baby? How did they know that he was coming? How did they know to be expecting him? As I studied, and if you study this, you learn that there was a great Jewish influence over these wise men over these magi. There was a time that even though they were not Jews, they were taught about the Jewish God. There was a time where they learned about the laws of God and the prophecy of God. There was a time where they were taught the truth about the Messiah that God was sending. See, these wise men taking this long journey to come and worship this baby Jesus had had a Jewish influence that caused them to know that the Messiah was coming. And that influence traces back 600 years. The Jewish influence was present with them 600 years before Christ was actually born. 600 years earlier, there was a man who was not afraid to teach them about God. There was a man in an ungodly land who was willing to take a stand. There was a man who was a man of prayer, a man who understood that God had a plan for his life. He took that plan seriously and influenced all those around him. There was a man who had been taken captive. His name was Daniel. This was the man who had been placed over all the wise men of the land. In fact, let me read you a couple of verses back from Daniel. We read them earlier, but under this context now, I want you to pay attention. Daniel 2.27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men... There's our key word. The astrologers, the magicians, and soothsayers showed to the king. Chapter 5, verse 7. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon. Verse 8 The king came in and all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing. Chapter 2, verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before Daniel, and here's what he tells him. Then Daniel made, a great, made him a great man, gave him many gifts, and many made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Again, chapter 5, verse 11, King Nebuchadnezzar is talking, and again, he's talking about Daniel being over all of the wise men of Babylon. See, 600 years prior to the birth of Christ, Daniel was over this group of people known as the wise men, the astrologers, the astronomers. He was responsible for their training. He was responsible for their teaching. It was his influence that caused this group of people to know about, to search for, and to come and worship the Messiah 600 years later. I want you to understand the significance of this. See, when we look at the life of Daniel, we see all of these things that he was doing. It was not just in this moment of time. It had a huge influence. When Daniel prayed to God, all the wise men saw it. When he worshiped God, they saw it. When he took a stand for his God, they saw it. When he gave credit to God, they saw it. When he encouraged the king to do right, they saw it. They could see that God was with him. When he came out of the lion's den, they saw it. His influence was great on this group of people. He trained them, he taught them according to his beliefs. The new wise men and the recruits that were brought in were brought in under his leadership and under his instruction, under his training, under his teaching. The dreams that Daniel interpreted were interpreted in view of his God. When they were compiling the book of interpretations and the rules for interpreting dreams, which they went by for hundreds of years after Daniel, it was done under Daniel's leadership. And everything that was done was done with the knowledge of the coming of the Messiah. When Daniel was doing all of these other things, he was operating and he was leading and he was teaching and he was instructing all of these wise men with his understanding and his belief that God is sending a Messiah, God is sending a Savior. See, I don't think Daniel in this moment in time understood the significance of what was happening. But 600 years later, this group of wise men take this long journey. They come to the place where Jesus had been born, and they fall down and they worship him. If it had not been for the influence of Daniel, these men would have never known to look for the Messiah, and they would have never been in a place to worship the Messiah. The wise men knew to look for Jesus because of the influence and the stand of one man is because of the faithfulness of one man, the obedience of one man, this one man's loyalty to God, his willingness to take a stand. You say, what does this teach us about Christmas? Obviously, we know the wise men coming to worship Jesus, that's part of the Christmas story. But how does the life of Daniel, what is, how, when we put all this together, what does it teach us about Christmas? Here's what I want you to understand. Through this story, we see that Christmas is about God's provision, Christmas is about God's provision. God is in control. God is sovereign. He wasn't just in control. God was not just in control the day Jesus was born. He has always been in control. I mean, we can walk through Scripture, we can go back to the life of Esther, and we can see how Esther went before the king, risking her life, but in so doing, saved the nation of Israel, preserving the line of Christ. We can go to Ruth, and we can see how God provided Ruth a husband. And in that moment, it may not seem like that big of a deal, but we understand that that led to the line of Christ. See, the birth of Christ was no accident. The wise men looking for the Messiah was no accident. But Daniel being over the wise men, that also was no accident. And might I add in that whatever you are going through this morning is also no accident. See, if we pause and we look around us, we focus on God, we see God's provision in our lives, and we can see his providence in our lives, and we can see that he's in control of everything. But what we should be reminded is that Christmas is about God providing It's about God having a plan for the future. It's about him being in control. All we need to realize is that just like in Daniel's life, God has a plan for each and every one of us. If you are here this morning, listen, God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you, for your life this morning. Christmas should remind us that God is in control. You know, I think about the life of Daniel. I think about all those things he went through. Being taken captive and taken to a foreign land, that's not enjoyable. Being in captivity, that is not enjoyable. Having your life threatened, that is not a pleasant circumstance. Being thrown into a lion's den, in all intents and purposes, maybe even thinking for a little bit that this is my last day on earth, that, that's not enjoyable. And in those moments in time, I can imagine Daniel sitting back thinking, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why are you allowing me to go through this and face this and face this challenge? And it wasn't, though, until 600 years later that we see that God had placed Daniel there for a very specific purpose, to train those wise men, to teach those wise men, to point them to God, to point them to the Messiah. 600 years later, God's plan starts to be be understood. The challenge for some of us this morning, you and me this morning, is to understand that we will go through things in our lives where we sit back like Daniel maybe did and say, God, what are you doing? I don't understand this. God, this is not pleasant. It seems like one thing after another. The bottom keeps falling out. God, why are you allowing this to happen? But if we learn anything from the life of Daniel, it's that God's at work. And we may not see it, and we may not understand it, and we don't know how all the pieces fit together, and we don't know how it's all going to work out. And it may be hundreds of years after we're gone, but God is at work in your life. And here's what it teaches us that our responses in these difficult circumstances and in these trials that we face is crucially important. I mean, Daniel didn't understand what's going to happen 600 years later, but he was still obedient. Daniel didn't understand how his influence would be read about for centuries to come, but he was still faithful. He didn't understand how all of these men for centuries to come would follow him and listen to him, but he was still a man of prayer. I wonder why. I mean, What would lead someone to, in the midst of trials and tragedies and difficulties, still respond correctly, even though he may not have understood how it was all working out and what the plan and the purpose was? and the only answer i can come up with is that he trusted god when he's thrown into the lion's den he trusted god when his three friends shadrach meshach and abednego in daniel chapter 3 4 are being thrown into the fiery furnace when I mean, what would what would cause someone to remain faithful to their beliefs in the midst of that i think it's because he trusted god And in your life this morning, you may be facing something and you say, I don't understand. I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why God is allowing this. But if you think back to the story of Daniel, know that God is always at work. It was no accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was no accident that it was announced to the shepherds. It was no accident that he was laid in a manger. It was no accident that the wise men knew to look for the Messiah. It was all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. God is at work. Remember me saying, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you may not understand how it all fits together, but that's where you have to trust. You have to trust. I'm going to close this in prayer in just a moment, but I want to challenge you to do two things. Two things. Here's the first one. Some of you this morning, you're in a difficult place. You're in your lion's den, so to speak. And you're wondering why. You're wondering, how is this going to work out? You're wondering, what is God doing? Look to the life of Daniel Look at that 600 years of history. Look what God did and say, if God was at work in him, then I know God's at work in me. And decide this morning to trust in God. If you understood and if you had all the answers, trust in faith would be unnecessary. Make the decision this morning to trust in God. And the second thing I want to challenge you to do is understand that Christmas is about God's provision. 600 years before the coming of Christ, God made a way for these wise men in Babylon to know to look for the Messiah and know to worship the Messiah. All of the Christmas story all the way through is about God providing a way of salvation and a way of forgiveness. Through the coming of Christ, it's more than just a baby being born. As Dana mentioned earlier, it's about the coming of our king. It's about the coming of the Messiah. It's about the offer of salvation, the offer of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life. That is all found through what God has done through sending his son, Christ. Christmas is God's provision. God has provided for you and for me through sending his son, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. So those two things, thank God for his provision. And the number two, commit to trust in God even when you don't understand because you know that God always has a plan and a purpose. Will you stand with me this morning? Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at 8